On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. A couple of common themes across the front pages of the Sunday papers. So maybe let's quickly start with the front page that isn't somewhat Hutch-themed. Uh, that's the Business Post. Uh, lead story today. Revealed legal problem at onboard Panola leaves 27,000 homes uh, in jeopardy. Um, a legal problem encountered by onboard Panola has placed the planning permissions of up to 27,000 homes already delayed in jeopardy, uh, the Business Post can reveal. The agency has admitted that it may have no option but to refuse permissions on large housing developments which are already delayed in the planning system for nearly a year. Uh, Una Buckley, who's the interim chairperson of Onboard Planola, has said that due to recent uh, changes in recent development plans published by local authorities, there is a legal problem as to whether we're going to be able to grant permission for up to 77 large housing projects. She said that due to planning law, there is no scope for developers to tweak their applications to make them compliant with subsequent changes to development plans. And as a result, on board plan all, it will be forced to outright refuse permission. There could well be circumstances where we have no choice but to refuse permission in those circumstances legally, Buckley said. The legal issue will force many developers who are already waiting on planning applications to be approved for up to 12 months to reapply and face further delays. 27,000 homes in jeopardy. Not like there's a shortage of housing or anything, um, which is great. Um, also on the front page of the business post, uh, the government has been warned that it risks overheating and unbalancing the economy if it spends its surging corporate tax windfalls, more about that in a few minutes, uh, and staff at WorkHuman, the Irish tech unicorn um, must explain unicorn some other day, but uh, nonetheless, staff at Work WorkHuman, the Irish tech unicorn are planning to lodge a formal complaint against the company to the Workplace Relations Commission uh, claiming that it's breached its statutory redundancy obligations to employees. That's the front page of the Business Post. Uh, from there on in, the front pages are very Hutch-themed. Uh, we'll start with the mail on Sunday. Uh, GSOC officer rented Hutch family house. A, a Garda Siakana Ombudsman Commission investigator, that's GSOC, uh, attended a party at Jerry Hutch's house with his landlady, who is a relative of the crime boss. The government has been briefed. Uh, the revelation comes as GSOC was rocked by the bombshell that one of its senior investigators had attended the post-acquittal celebration. Uh, senior sources believe that the investigator was living just four doors away from Hutch's relative from whom he was renting his accommodation. It's understood that that's how he came to be invited to the party at Hutch's house in Clontarf just hours after he dramatically walked free from the Special Criminal Court on Monday. A senior government source has told the Mail on Sunday we have been briefed that the GSOC investigator allegedly attended the party in the company of his landlady who has a relationship to the leader of the Hutch gang. The Mail on Sunday has learned that the senior investigating officer became friendly with the female Hutch relative after arriving here in 2018. The man in his late 60s was a sergeant in the police in his home country for over 40 years before he was hired by the Garda Ombudsman uh, following an interview on Zoom. He's well known among Gardaí for his involvement in some high profile investigations into members of the force. Um, The front page of the Sunday Times, uh, again more Hutch themed content. Uh, Regency hitman for Hutch gang was informant, says John Mooney. One of Ireland's most notorious gunmen, Kevin Flatcap Murray, who was hired by the Hutch crime gang to murder the leader of the Kinahan cartel at the Regency Hotel, worked as an informant for the security services. Uh, The involvement of Murray, a violent Republican who was photographed running from the hotel in swords, led directly to the identification of Jonathan Dowdle, the former Sinn Féin councillor, as one of the gang who helped to plan and execute the attack in 2016. Murray's identification by Donegal Gardaí was the crucial breakthrough in the Regency investigation, sources tell the Sunday Times. Um, This followed the circulation of his image on the Garda internal intelligence system. Uh, His handlers are said to have recognised the stocky gunman from Straban as Flatcap because he hadn't worn a mask or a disguise. Sources said that without his identification it would have taken Gardeen months to penetrate the gang because they had no intelligence on the case. Uh, And finally for now the front page of the Sunday Independent 
Uh, Gardaí fear ex-cop at Hutchbash may have been got at. Um, Gardaí are assessing whether a member of GSOC uh, who claimed that he attended the party last Monday with Jerry the Monk Hutch was compromised by the Hutch organised crime group. Um, six days ago, as we all now know, Hutch walked free from the special criminal courts after the court found him not guilty of the murder of David Byrne at the Regency in 2016. In a dramatic development on Friday night, it emerged that the GSOC investigator told people he was at the party in North Inner City, Dublin, attended by Hutch. Um, the man is understood to have become friendly with a female member of Hutch's family. The source tells us on Independent that Langarda Siakon was formed late on Friday that the member of its staff had resigned over claims that, quote, he partied with the monk. Gardaí were informed and we are investigating the matter. The National Bureau of Crime Investigation is best placed to potentially examine it in further depth. In fairness to GSOC, they moved swiftly once this matter was identified and it's been reported to Gardaí. A formal guard investigation, by the way, has not yet been launched. This matter is very much live. However, the circumstances are being fully addressed, uh, assessed rather, um, at this early stage. So lots of... um, Hutch-themed front pages this morning. Uh, to discuss those uh, stories in some more detail, we're joined by political journalist Aoife Moore and by Gina London, communication specialist and a former CNN correspondent. Uh, thank you both very much for coming in. Um, I will park the, the Hutch discussion for a little while because there's there's a lot to get through, but there's, there's a couple of other pieces, and I mentioned one of them on the front of the Business Post, um, about the amount of money that the state's now got uh, at its disposal and um, whether it's very jarring for people who might still be struggling with the cost of living um, to discover that the state is now suddenly awash with money. Uh, and there's a few pieces dotted all around the papers on that general theme. Um, Aoife, I'll start with yourself. What jumps out at you from the coverage this morning? I am sick to death of hearing how much money Ireland has when we know that the poor are getting poorer and that we are in the midst of the worst ever housing crisis in the history of the state. I understand, you know, from what we read in the Business Post mm. is that you, that IFAC said that if we spend all this newfound cash, mm. we will overheat the economy because inflation is still pretty bad. I was very interested, what we read in the Sunday Endo, that they're going to start a new reserve fund mm. where the money will be put aside and they will use that to tackle housing and health. And I think that's the only moral thing that we could actually do. I understand yeah. that there are concerns around inflation, but if there is a fund put aside, because we did have one before and then that was raided yes. during, in, the, in uh, during the crash. Famously, yes. Um, but we need to, you know, they say, well, we can't you know, spend this because we can't rely on this money. We don't know how long it's going to last, mm. et cetera, et cetera. But, but you could spend it on one-off stuff then if you just don't yeah, commit to making exactly. it an annual Exactly, you don't thing. make it a part of your budget. Yeah. But if it, like, as I said, when it comes to mental health, yeah. housing, any of those issues, pick one issue. We mm. have a myriad of crises here. Pick one issue and put some money on it. You say that you're sick to death of hearing about it all when so many people are hard up. Mm. I mean, I suppose... Uh, well, A, we only found out this week that we're so awash with cash, I suppose. So it's, it's unfortunate you're so sick of hearing about it after a few <laughs> days already. But um, like, it's the sort of thing you have to talk about, though, because if you do want to address mm. any of those myriad crises, you have to start grappling with the fact that, well, the state is probably the only party that can address can all of this. Anything. Yeah, that's and if thing. they've got the cash, then you kind of have to talk about it, yeah, whether you're sick of it I mean. or not. It's like, no, it's the dichotomy that I think people are seeing. You know, we're saying, oh, we're getting more and more, you know, our tax receipts are higher now than they've ever been uh, and all this information is coming towards people when people are at the point of their collar you know it's not being reflected in how mm. people's lives are being affected and I think that's why people are sick of hearing about it because if it doesn't affect their lives and it doesn't make their lives better mm. 
than well, then, it what, makes well, no odds to them. What does it tell us then that if people are already sick of hearing about it because they don't think like this affects them? It doesn't. Like, they've already resigned themselves to not getting to see any of that 10 billion quid. Yeah, I think so. You know, we're not seeing um, any big changes and we know with inflation and the cost of living crisis and there's a survey in one of the papers this week it says like 8 in 10 people expect that it's going to get worse and mm. I think most of us in this room would agree that we think it's going to get worse and I think that the thing that bothers people most is it's the poor that gets poor. It's the most yeah. vulnerable that are um, affected first. So I think Michael McGrath, if he does have this um, idea to make a reserve uh, fund, I think that's 100% the right thing to do. Yeah. Uh, that that uh, survey that you mentioned is in the Business Post as well. Uh, consumer sentiment is at levels not seen since the economic crisis in 2009 According to the latest consumer mood tracker from Red Sea, only 14% of consumers surveyed expect the Irish economy to improve over the next six months. A number of reasons behind this. Most consumers expect the cost of living, borrowing costs and the affordability of housing to worsen oh further according to something. I don't I don't mean to sound like I'm saying that like with any kind of tongue in cheek because like the, the the gravity of that like if we're suddenly talking about the state being awash with cash Gina mm. and yes people are still so fretful about being able to make their own bills this like, is exactly it's quite the clash this is, well this is the disconnect between the headline about the 65 billion euro surplus and in particular the 16 billion euro corporate tax surplus as the Minister for Enterprise Simon Coveney said it's a fantastic headache to have but the headaches of the people that are being interviewed and being surveyed about where's their heating going to go. I know we're going yeah. into the summer months, but as an American living in Ireland, summer's not always warm here. <laughs> and there's still <laughs> concerns around yeah, How many summers have utility? you spent here now and you haven't eight, gotten used to our... Eight, okay. eight. In fact, my daughter's quite very embraced the Irish. Uh, it's 40 degrees Fahrenheit and now it's warm, but yeah. I'm still like, wait, it's freezing on in the summer. But mm. at any rate, the point though is, let's think about the poli- the parties in Rangeley. 10 degrees Celsius today. That's like, that, that is well, a balmy yeah, 50 Fahrenheit. I'm still Fahrenheit. trying to convert that yeah. to Fahrenheit. It's basically, like, what it's basically that tops off weather. <laughs> yeah. 50, is, 50 is not shorts weather in my opinion. And yeah. let's move on though to the the the, the landscape on, in politics around this surplus and the announcement of it and the idea that it's a great headache and we're going to put it in a reserve and save it for that day because of the corporate tax, there's only a few large companies that that's dependent, that that's coming from. So that's something to bear in mind. Mm. Is that going to continue? That windfall is likely to fall away. However, in the immediacy of what we're talking about now, the utilities and the concerns about inflation and the costs, isn't there a way to give a systematic, detailed description of some funding that can go to address, you just mm. mentioned the, mm-hmm. the housing planning yeah. problems. There are so many systems in this country, from my experience and from others who've moved here, that are slow, antiquated, need to be made more efficient, and that will bring about some of the, need is, the needs change. Well, the need change. T- tangent so then, put as somebody who's into eight, that in a way that is very comprehensive and, again, very accountable because there's an election mm. ahead. And as so, oh, don't Fina, we know? Gale, yeah. don't find a way to make this. It, that's actually useful for the people who are involved in that yeah. survey and living here day to day, then I think other parties will use it as their political fodder. Well, they well, should. I'll come back to Aoife with the electoral consequences of all of this in just a minute. But just as a tangent, having spent eight summers here and coming in with an outsider's perspective and then getting to grips with the way that Ireland works in all these different things, what strikes you as like the most culture shockish, like can't believe this works so slowly or this inefficiently? Like of, of all the systems that you've interacted with, like where do you go holy hell, that's slow, or that's not working properly. For, and I'm putting you on the spot here. No, no, it's okay, and I don't have specific specifics, but I, I could dig for them. But in general terms, 
for a country that is this small with this much kind of surplus as we talk about, contrast it with a Switzerland, a Sweden, a, a, a Netherlands, mm. or France, where the healthcare, for example, is incredibly efficient, is incredibly top-notch, which is cutting edge. You, I, I lived yeah. in France for two years. I lived in... In, in other countries where we, I'm not compared to the U.S. By the way, no, no, no. Point, <laughs> but, point taken. Yeah, but there are some efficiencies in technologies and tech. The technology it would provide faster for the planning commission for yeah. housing. How to get a mortgage in this in this country? How delayed and slow it is is fantastic to me from a standpoint of the numbers that are needed to be turned and the departments that are there to serve. Yeah. I find it really interesting, too. It seems like it is a very overrepresented country yeah. with the number of council people and the number of, of national service people for the amount of inefficiencies that are mm. connected to that. Um, on the the electoral front, Ethan, we've just been reminded mm-hmm. that there's going to be a general election uh, within the next two years. Hopefully if not, not until my book comes out. <laughs> All right, that, that's uh, that's a conversation we'll come back to sometime later this autumn. Um, but like, I I find I, I can't get my head around the idea that this this is going to change politics in in ways that we haven't yet grasped for the next two years. Because ordinarily, when you have any discussion around should we do X, should we do Y, should we do Z, and, and there's mm. always the you know the question about can you compound inflation, and you've you've addressed that already. Mm. But there's always two responses. There's a you know, oh, I don't know if it's wise to spend our money on this front when we could do other things with it. Um, you're already rolling your eyes, listeners. Um, but and the second one is we don't have the money, and that that second defence of no actually we don't have the money to do that, no like that viable. that's gone. Mm-hmm. So now now the, the, for the next two years, people will say, oh, we should do this, and immediately the government's going to find itself on the defensive yeah. of well, why can't we do that or why don't we do that, and yeah. that, that's going to be a very very difficult fight to have for two years. I absolutely have no doubt and I am more than happy to come back to this show when the next budget is quite... The next budget we are going to have is going to be a giveaway budget. That is a, a complete certainty because they know they have the money mm. and we're coming to local elections and then it'll be a general election and it will be a giveaway budget. Mm. So all this... Uh, I can't think of a nice word. Oh, so all this chatter about, well, we can't do that or we don't want to... Um, you know, make inflation worse. None of that will matter come October, 100%, because the local elections will be the marker yeah. of how the general election is going to go. You know, we saw in one of the polls recently that Fina Yale on 15%. Leo Vrager said oh. he's not worried. They mind the TDs who text me about it. <laughs> They're all pretty worried whether okay. the leader is or not. Your phone was as, so, as warm with vibrations as mine was on exactly, the day. Exactly. Yeah, sure. um, the number of expletives used um, <laughs> was quite interesting. So I think we will see a giveaway budget, but I find, find that quite cynical. Yeah. I think there are crises now that could be dealt with now. And I actually think it would be a good way for Fina Fall, who now have the finance department to make not radical changes mm. but make big decisions so then they can differentiate themselves from Fianna Gael because they know that that has, their, has mm. been their issue for years it's but people don't know the difference between a Fianna Fáil policy and a Fianna Gael policy so this would be Michael McGrath's time to shine to say mm. okay this is what we're going to do and because yeah. we have the money now to do it and I think it would be a good yeah. electoral strategy for Fianna Fáil. Which is actually weird if, if you think about the split between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael and the two different departments that they've got. So Michael McGrath is now Minister for Finance, which mm. is the incoming side. He's the Minister for Tax. Mm-hmm. And then Pascal Donoghue is the Minister for, Minister for, for spending. spending. And Pascal Donoghue has this reputation in the rest of government for being like... He, he well, sees, he's tight with the purse well, well, One person's prudence <laughs> is another person's stinginess. Yeah. Like part of the, that he's parsimonious yeah. sometimes with spending. And now he may have 10 million more to throw around. Mm. And there's going to be ministers looking at him going... 
Can Pascal, I would some? you mind having yeah. some money on, on this this urgent thing that needs fixing, please? And his instinct might be to not do that. And on the other side, Michael McGrath is the Minister for Tax and the one big tax policy that's on the table is Leo Varadkar's idea of having another tax band of 30% in between mm-hmm. the 20 and 40. So if Fianna Fáil go and implement that, then they look like they're stealing Fine Gael's clothing. So it's going to be very difficult to but, 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 differentiate but, but, themselves. But the notion of stealing each other's clothing doesn't make, doesn't bother people in the street. Like, no one is going to have less or more money in their pocket and say, well, that's Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael's fault. Mm-hmm. They can't see the difference between either them well, stealing their clothes or not. Yeah. So I think, um, I just do think if there is, electorally, this would be the time I would be moving on certain things because they have mm-hmm. the money to do. Uh, spend some of the surplus improving the infrastructure, services and conditions for those adults and children with special needs, uh, says one texter. Uh, currently in crisis, sadly few votes. Indeed, um, when I was here three weeks ago and I was talking about the pay disparity between um, the HSE and certain outside contractors who provide services on the part of the HSE, the, the HSE is able to pay more than those outside private uh, pro- private providers can. So there's obviously inequality there that's one place that you could put the money to um, somebody else says in response to, to Gina's last contribution we've already got a billion euro of an underspend in housing and the health budget is 24 billion a year more money at those services isn't going to fix them it's not just throwing money at things exactly right it's about taking a real comprehensive integrated overhaul of the systems in general mm. how are people checked in how what are what are the types of services that are provided why does everybody go to the emergency room when they could be going to 24-hour mm-hmm. clinics yeah. the system as it's set up now in my experience there are great practitioners out there there are great doctors and, and nurses out there i'm not getting at individuals but overall the system seems to act in many ways like the 1950s or the 1960s or the 1970s mm. yeah. certainly not 2023 yeah and i yeah. could even say like someone from the north like and you know, we obviously have the have the nhs which has its own litany of problems but i could not believe how bad the service was in the HSA and you have to pay for it at least I was getting it for free but when you're getting <laughs> when you're getting things uh, north of the border for free though that you have to wait longer to get them like you, you get a free GP's appointment but yeah but I feel fortnight. much more looked after when I'm at the GP in the north and that's not the GP's yeah. fault it's not the per- the individual's fault it is just the overstretched and underfundedness of okay. it that I find uh, and imagine that this person is going to have an issue with Gina just using the phrase emergency room uh, would you politely ask Gina to please leave hey. Far- please leave uh, well uh, there you go uh, please leave Fahrenheit <laughs> on the shores of the US if you want to be efficient use Celsius uh, says that person that's, ten- just a, that's just a factor of me well, being poor at math when well, it comes uh, to same. trying to do the division <laughs> yeah. I know that 10 is sort of okay well, 14 yeah, is warmer th- that person's temperature has just, gone, super warm. has just gone north of the 50 Fahrenheit that currently <laughs> is um, outside uh, just by the by because given you be here 8 years just, just as a, a gut check Word association game. Tato is Ireland's leading brand of? Of, of crisp. crisp. Not, not potato chips. Not potato so chips. I've even been right. to Tato Park and I actually knew um, Ray Doyle very well before he died. Bless his heart. Uh, there is a well-established principle in business, says Colm. You have to spend money to make money. So invest in capacity and your business will grow. Therefore, investing these billions now into things like secure energy generation, proper nationwide broadband and affordable housing will help to grow the economy and keep multinationals here in the future. Um I don't know if there's that's very a, much that's a um, lovely argument with that. That's, that's a idea. lovely point. Um, just because you mentioned it, by the way, I'm going to go to an ad break in just a minute, but Aoife, you mentioned um, you know being north of the border and you know, you've been spending a few days there. Um, there's a... A- anyone who lives north of the border and anyone who lives in a border region is going to be getting an alert on yes. their phone this afternoon uh, which yeah tell us about that yeah so uh, the British government have brought this in um, it, it's done in a lot of countries um, Japan um, different places across Europe but a, a test will take place at any 4G and 5G enabled phone well, an alarm will sound at three o'clock today. Everyone has been warned that this alarm actually doesn't mean anything. This is just the first time they're doing it and it's a test. So it's going to warn people about immediate 
danger. So it could be floods, fires, terrorist attacks, all this sort of stuff. So at the start, you know, they just said, you know, this is a way of updating our alerts. That's something they have mm. similar things in America, you yeah. know, but people live in like tornado pathways yeah. so, um, so it's not a case of being signed up to a system or whatever your phone just automatically, just automatically beeps and this says like when you, tornado coming leave this now this is please. like you know when a YouTube at their album and everyone's iPhone <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it's that before an actual threat to your right. life like, yeah. an, yeah. like an amber alert or a tornado alert yeah, yeah. exactly okay. so um, there only there had been some concerns now obviously anything to do with the public there's going to be complaints but the main one for me is the concern that was raised by Women's Aid who said that a lot of victims of domestic violence um, who lived with their abuser, a lot of them will have a separate phone, a second phone um, that they keep secret from their abuser. Mm. And they have been warning people to please put your phone away or take it out of the house if the other person doesn't know yeah, because about the, the phone. It, this is still going to, to bleep out loud, yes. even if you've got it on even silent. Even if your phone is on silent or yeah. anything like that, it is still going to beep. So people have been warned that if you do have a secret phone, can you make sure you're out of the house or the phone is at least out of the house because they might use that phone to phone refuges or different yeah. things. So that's the big concern for people at the moment. A concern that I suppose many people who might have conceived that the policy might not have been mindful of, but at least it's something for those who do have a second phone to be aware of. Uh, I'll leave you with this for part one. Noble Guardian, a regular correspondent on health matters, uh, has been in touch on Twitter, on the record NT. Uh, Comprehensive overhaul of the system, like Sláinte Care, the the initiative that's been stalled under the watch of Robert Watt. Uh, More about Uh, Robert Watt. The cross-party agreed, Sláinte Care. Yeah, well, um, more about Robert Watt and plenty of other things in the papers when we're back with Gina and Aoife after this. The voices of Paul Reynolds and Stephen Murphy, among others, uh, outside the Criminal Courts of Justice on Monday after the acquittal of Jared the Monk Hutch for the murder of David Byrne in the Regency Hotel in February 2016. Uh, as you will have heard a few minutes ago, that, that ruling and some of the subsequent events around a, an official with GSOC attending a party for Jerry Hutch uh, making a lot of waves uh, in today's papers still join the studio to discuss those papers by Gina London and Aoife Walsh uh, Aoife Moore excuse me I don't know who Aoife Walsh is if there's an Aoife Walsh listening I do apologise I've no idea I've no idea who you are but I'm very sorry um, Aoife Moore uh, I mentioned during the ad break this is what we were going to come to next and you said I have a rant ready so be my guest the elephant in the room here with all of everything about the Hutch trial is that I was a court reporter for a very, very brief time, a couple of years, and even I knew that Jerry Hutch was going to be found not guilty. The, the, the extent of the evidence was not good enough, especially for the Special Criminal Court. Jonathan Doidle is not, was not and is not a reliable witness. He is a proven liar and an admitted liar. And the guards felt that they could go for the maximum charge here and try and charge Jerry Hutch what the judgment that the judges actually gave when he was found not guilty was mm. visceral against why they, like, they didn't even prove at one point that Jerry Hutch was in the country and you know there was one part of it we saw on the CCTV that one of the gunmen runs and jumps up onto the reception of the hotel Jerry Hutch is a older man like it was obvious even to me that it wasn't Jerry Hutch mm. and I feel like there has to be a question he would have been 53 the, at the time the yeah. amount of money spent um, not only on protecting now Jonathan Doidle he'll be on witness protection as he was promised and also Jerry Hutch uh, now not guilty will probably never be convicted of anything again to do with the Regency mm. um, I think there has to be serious questions about the failures of um, the Guardian and why the DPP yeah. also felt that these charges 
were were strong well, enough to go to the special criminal court. There was an interesting question that was posed by the ruling when it was read out by Justice Tara Burns on Monday, which was that had Jonathan Dowdle not become the star witness in the case, what would the case actually have been? Mm-hmm. Which is an interesting alternate universe to be in, to wonder exactly how they would have prosecuted it. Were they not so dependent on the evidence of someone who was clearly an unreliable witness? Well, it very much appears to me that the guards were completely, and they said that, that they were completely shocked when Jonathan Dowdle said that he would go state's witness. They did not expect this at all. And I think they were a bit bamboozled by the whole thing. I thought, mm. we've got him now. Jonathan Dowdle is going to give you know, all this evidence. But then we were faced with the evidence that in 10 hours of recorded conversation when they did not know they were being recorded, Jerry the Moncotch did not mention being involved in this whatsoever. Mm. Um, I also think if there should have been some uh, examination on the fact that when he got on the stand, another, a senior counsel could say to him, you've lied to the Special Criminal Court before. And he said, yes. And he said, but you're not lying now. And he said, no. You know, those sorts of things. There should have been a bit of foresight that these sort of things would happen. Yeah. And, you know, the Special Criminal Court, and as we know, it's deeply controversial and divisive. But you also need to remember that in Special Criminal Court, there is no jury. It's just the judge. And they're only going to look at the evidence in front of them. Mm. And the evidence in front of them was not good enough. And I could see that as an outsider and I am not in any way a legal expert. Mm. Um, Gina, you uh, professed during the ad break that some of the um, the very rich tapestry of story between the kitchen, or the uh, Hutch Kinnahan. and Kinahan families is something that's gone sort of largely over your head. So with even with that <laughs> disclosure in mind, and I don't, I don't mean that in the disparaging way because no, no. I understand it's, it's a very technical thing to suddenly wander into. Uh, with all of that in mind, what is your reflection on where well, we the, are this the, weekend? Well, the twisted tentacles of a story like this that has so many players and has been going on for so long. And when I first moved here to Ireland in 2015, it was right around the time that Gary Hutch had been and had been shot, as I recall. And that was, the, I think, the beginning of the whole, the murder yeah. that started so the, this the whole thing was, off. was February, that was the February next 16, year. It was yeah. the next year. And, and so one of the things that's difficult for anybody who's an outsider is there is a tendency, and again, overgeneralization alert, there's a tendency in journalism, in my experience, in, in the newspapers in this country, to write assuming that the reader yeah. knows everything before the, the story begins. Mm. There's not a real, like what we would do in journalism in the U.S., we have a little little paragraph that reminds you of what the hell's going on and, and give a little recap. And every story. And what happens is it's an ongoing narrative, as as Mm -hmm. Aoife was just now explaining her, being in the courtroom and all that kind of drama. That's what is difficult when you jump into a story to go, wait, now, who is this? And what is that? And who is that person? And they were Mm -hmm. dressed as a woman. And what happened? And there was a boxing match. And or what was going? I mean, I Mm. have had to do so much research to go back and go. Can I get the date, please? Mm-hmm. When did this happen? Who are these people? What's the origin story? I was saying to your your producer before we went on air that I was reminded of when I was in high school and we read Wuthering Heights. And the, prof- and the teacher was kind enough to give us a little bit of a family organizational mm. chart diagram. God, of, I wish I had one of those because I, I hate Wuthering Heights. Here's I Catherine. So much here's the Moors. I'm sorry to bring this back to you. his first or his last name? For God's sake, what's going well, on? Well, but see, that's the same thing. Like, the monk... I last when when my partner who is Irish says to me earlier when this happened, hey, the monk got released. I'm like, who the hell? What the monk? What mm. what are we talking about? Oh, do we know why he's called the monk? 
uh, because he wasn't one for talking that he generally oh, tended to tended to retain his silence Eva didn't know right, that know. Yeah, so, yeah. As, as demonstrated by his, his departure from court on Monday and yeah. I saw one of the newspaper headlines afterwards was discussing how he had walked around for three or four minutes before he was able to get into the taxi and didn't manage to say anything to anyone and they headlined that with Monk's vow of silence yeah. uh, which was yeah, quite, it's, quite the it's, headline. It's a, given that's, the all that said, it's a fascinating story. Like any kind of organized crime boss stories mm. happen, like in the U.S. or in, yeah. in Italy, where I also used to live. And these kinds of stories do have twists and turns and overlaps and all of that. I would love to hear in a story like this. So, what's the next? Is there is the trial done? Is there anybody going to be? Hold, I mean, is that this is, is there a I new think, investigation I, going I, on? I don't I, know. Like, there's so many questions. Mm. This is what I think is the greatest tragedy about this. Is that there is a victim of this, a man, yes. a 33 yes, year old exactly. man, a 33 year old man was murdered, and now because of incompetence, whether on the part of the Gardaí or the DPP or whoever else, there, it, it is likely that we will never get to the bottom of this story in a legal capacity because of such, how sh- much of a shambles this mm. court case has been. Uh, I will just say in passing that, uh, and I, I'm not someone who's ever covered uh, the criminal courts or um, criminal matters in general, um, but suffice to say, I always thought it was slightly fanciful to accuse that somebody so senior in an organised crime gang would themselves be pulling the trigger. That yeah. generally speaking, isn't it the way that there is always somebody else, uh, a subordinate of some kind, and who, who does the donkey work so that those at the top always have their fingerprints that's, clean? That's what I learned in The Sopranos. But um, <laughs> no. But even when you listen to the recordings and the thing that I took away from it within the recordings with Jonathan Doidle and Jerry Hutch, it was so obvious. It sounded like Jonathan Doidle, this younger kind of man, trying to impress this old guy and talking and talking and talking and talking. And Jerry Hutch basically saying very little of anything. It was like something out of a film. You know, you just could get mm. their characters straight off. And um, yeah, as I said, I just find that incredibly disappointing because, you know, when that uh, per man's family leaving the court, yes, everyone was chasing David Byrne. David yeah. Byrne right. Everyone was chasing Jerry Hutch and his mommy and his sister were coming out of the court and just looked so mm. let down. Uh, text just by the way uh, from John and Navin a reminder about the, the previous story about the uh, the phone alert that's going off uh, in Northern Ireland and perhaps in some border areas as well uh, just a reminder that your second phone won't alarm if it is turned off for the period uh, not rocket science folks I suppose they're, they're the point John from Navin and, and thank you for making the point is that uh, many people may not have known that this was coming and may not have mm-hmm. had the foresight to be able to turn off their phone or not realised that it will still go off even if the phone is turned to silent. So the advice to them if they need to keep a second phone quiet is to actually power it down uh, for the time around the, the alert this afternoon. Um, yes, the DPP made the wrong call in this case, uh, says Column and County Kerry. However, they do get it right in the vast majority of cases and many successful prosecutions are made daily. And I suppose it is worth bearing in mind that there were two people who were convicted of the Special mm-hmm. Criminal Court as a result of the case brought by the DPP uh, for lesser roles in the events at the Regency Hotel. Um, the side note, um, the, the, the subsequent story um, on the Jerry Hutch matter is this party that was held on Monday night yeah. uh, in Clontarf um, by friends and associates of Jerry Hutch uh, celebrating his, his acquittal in the case, uh, attended by uh, someone who was at the time an investigator for GSOC and their subsequent resignation. Um, there is one interesting paragraph on the front page of the Sunday Independent, Gina. Um, a separate source within a Garda says that the man's uh, described it as a lapse of judgment um, which has astonished members of the force but it's not clear what action, if any, Gardaí might take because, the source said, the GSOC investigator has not on the face of it committed a crime and I haven't heard anyone suspecting that it's anything other than extremely poor judgment. Mm-hmm. Uh, which which makes the observation that um, if Jerry Hutch is now seen in the eyes of the law as a man who was acquitted uh, and, you know, was, you know, f- faced a trial for the murder of David Byrne and was found not guilty, 
then in a way you sort of have to wonder that well what why is it supposed to be this kind of grave sin of somebody to attend his party Great. Like, if, if he's an innocent man what's wrong with going to his do <clears throat> I also consider well there's a sorry, sorry no just quickly because a quick question on that is is I'm reading this article in the, in the independent and we're talking about this this member of, of GSOC as I'm reading it he's resigned and he's yes. quit yeah so that in some ways I guess that alleviates any questions of prior to the party mm. how close was he was with, with the landlord and with and who's the relative of of, yeah. of the monk etc 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 and could there have been any kind of potential mis I don't want to say go as far as corruption but could there have been something that would have been influenced what other things did he over have oversight of blah 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 mm. so there might be an investigation just to go back through his records to see if there was something like that and if in some way that he was I don't know so soft toward yeah. this which would then also then be potentially to other hutch again yeah. the tentacles of the hutch thing I don't quite yeah, all well, understand the reach but to the initial point and of itself mm. can you attend an acquitted person's party sure but you also need to be very careful about things yes. about uh, about how it's uh, viewed yeah. and the pers and the perception uh, I, so I it'd be better to err on the on the side of caution yeah, on that I, is it a crime i guess it Probably is not. i guess it is the point of, of prior association maybe is the question that it raises and that's why the headline on the sunday dependent is is the fear that this ex-cop may have been quote got at or, or might have been somehow compromised or, or right for previous things you just go back through his record um elsewhere inside the Sunday Independent, on a totally different story. The Guardians of Champagne will let no one take the name of the bubbly beverage in vain, not even a US beer behemoth. Uh, for years, Miller High Life has used the Champagne of Beers slogan, but last week that appropriation became impossible to swallow because at the request of the trade body defending the interest of houses of growers of the northeastern French sparkling wine, Belgian custom workers crushed more than 2,000 cans of Miller High Life. Oh, come on. This is a great story. As, as an American who, like any college student, I mean, most people, uh, this would never be a beer. Miller would never be mistaken say, as a champagne of anything. <laughs> I mean, Miller is like, I mean, Miller yes. is below bud. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the everyday yeah. working man's beer. Other, other beers but, are available. But, uh, <laughs> but here's the thing about, about Miller. I mean, gosh, it's been a it's it's a total staple of Americana. Mm. Everybody's yeah. had it's Miller time. Miller yes. time would be yeah. something that they would say. It's so, not so, so much yeah, the so champagne, champagne thing. But so but champagne, champagne and beers is a long standing slogan for this. Since like nineteen oh six and the beer's been around since nineteen oh three. I mean like since you know, practically people were drinking beer. Um <laughs> kidding. But of course, it's all fine and dandy if you're doing it in the good old U.S. of A., but you can't be taking that beer mm. over to the to Europe because yeah. that's where it falls under the well, law. Yeah, because so so France is, of course, has this this trademark, I guess, yeah. really. I mean, and to the, to be fair to them, Champagne region, Champagne is you yeah. can't call it Champagne. It's Prosecco. It's it's sparkling yes. wine. So, it's so, anything but Champagne. So God forbid, beer. Yes. Try to claim that it's Champagne. So, so sh Champagne. The, the, the origin behind all of this is that because Champagne is a protected term and, and only sparkling wine Once that, that is over produced in the Champagne region can be referred to as Champagne. So therefore, when this beer shows up and it's got the slogan on its bottle, Champagne of Beers. Apparently, they are ineligible to use the phrase champagne to describe their product. Yeah, and, and I'm that's surprised why... that it's taken a hundred and some years before this has ever been. Well, have they never exported to, but to Europe does, before? Doesn't, no, doesn't all of this? Have taste. Well, doesn't, all, doesn't all of this imply <laughs> that people? Enough. Doesn't all this imply that people can't tell the difference between bottled beer and, and champagne? champagne. <laughs> but like we know, like how pre how precious French people and especially champagne growers are about mm. champagne. So I, I'm not ultimately surprised because. We 
we know they are very snooty. <laughs> and, as someone, and as someone from Indiana, where we were definitely drinking Miller, Miller, I can make a comment. <laughs> Don't call me a snob because this is true. Most people who are drinking Miller never are drinking champagne, yeah. so they wouldn't. Know <laughs> well, in case we were wondering what clip to use for the promos on the program for the next week, uh, when you hear it on the ad breaks on News Talk, <laughs> now you've just got it. Um, text from Pat who says, "We know we're going to spend two billion euro on a children's hospital that other countries would have completed years ago for a third of the cost." So until we address that continuing problem, we will never see any value for any budget surpluses, says Pat. Uh, do keep your go on. I'm quite excited to see the final cost of the children's hospital. Like I think by the time it gets done, we're going to be mm. astronomical. Uh, I don't know if excitement is the phrase that a lot of people would use, uh, but if you are excited or want to ascribe any other adjectives to the final cost of the Children's Hospital, do let us know. 087-1400-106 is the number on WhatsApp. More to come in the papers with Aoife and Jean after this. Still joined in studio by Gina London and Aoife Moore. Not Aoife Walsh, don't know where she's gone to, but she's not here. Um, Aoife Moore and Gina London still with me to go through the what's in the Sunday papers. And understandably... Um, a lot about housing and, and maybe this in a way is something that we've already covered a bit because of our discussion earlier about the amount of money that the state's uh, got in its coffers but in particular the front page of the Business Post um, is quite a striking one because look we all know that there's a shortage of housing and we all know that the country isn't mad about uh, large corporate developers but they do have a quite important role in helping to address the housing shortage but we mm-hmm. do now learn that because of planning applications that were made under previous county or city development plans uh, and because those development plans have now been changed that the chairperson of Onboard Planola, Una Buckley says that the Onboard Planola may be forced to just refuse planning permission for those projects outright because the um, there is no way for those applications to be tweaked or amended in any way to bring them in line with the new uh, county and city development plans. Uh, Killian Woods tells us on the front page of the Business Post um, that a flagship project by the Land Development Agency, the state-backed body tasked with building affordable homes, may also be impacted by this because they've applied to build 977 homes on the site of the Central Mental Hospital in Dundrum. But that's unprocessed by Onboard Planola. They were meant to get their final decision in July 22. And the county development plan for what I guess is Dunleary Rathdown County Council has been amended in the meantime. And they may have to go back to the drawing board. It's not a great look, Gina. Oh man, don't get me started once again on the on the planning processes. And, okay, and it's not a great look, Eva. You know what? No, can I, I just say, can I just no, can we set this yeah. in stark contrast? There's an interview done by Hugh O'Connell on this on the Independent today with a housing well, minister. I was going to get there. Yeah, the headline yeah. is the Believer. He t- it talks at length about Dara O'Brien's unbridled confidence in himself and confidence in housing for all, despite the continual. Um, continual mass targets mm. in social and affordable homes and the rising rate of homelessness. So let's put those two stories beside each other. Yeah. So as far as I'm aware, we need to build around 30,000 houses per year At just least. to stand still, yeah. just to deal with the, just our to deal current with, issues with the, with the new arising demand yeah. and it doesn't right. deal with any arrears. And, yeah. and we are not hitting any targets. Yeah. The government is not hitting any targets. Housing for all you know, yeah. whatever. So, Un- underattended story of this week, by the way, is the, the failure to meet those housing targets. But we might come back yeah. to that in a minute. So I just, you put these two stories side by side. Now mm. we've he- we're here now possibly 27,000 homes, less than what we need anyway, are in jeopardy. Yeah. And the housing minister thinks, mm. he actually says in that interview, he doesn't think there's anyone better for the job than him. God grant me the confidence of this man. 
because if it was me, I'd be showing a wee bit more humility and saying I understand people are really Would up you do against it? it. If somebody offered you the gig as Minister for Housing tomorrow, made you a Taoiseach's appointee to the Shannon and gave you the Ministry <laughs> for Housing, would you take it? Not for all the tea in China. Not a chance. Gina? Quick, quick thoughts on the dis- on the discrepancy and the disparity between what what Eva was describing. With it. we've got the shortfall of the we know the number, we know that that needs to be met, and yet there are these incredibly arcane and complicated processes to get developments approved. And I can say, actually, after my career with CNN, I worked in government affairs in the state of Colorado, which worked with big developers, worked with residential housing developers, with multifamily. I worked in zoning. I worked in urban redevelopment. And the process in Colorado, for example, 54 days on average. And I've been on this program for, for before an, talking about an application for an for application the, the, the to get through to get to get approved through the days. Department of, of Planning. <laughs> okay. so and weeks. that's with, yes, and that's with rights to object, rezoning applications, even big complicated pro- 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 projects mm. are under a year. And this process here, I've never examined it, so I'm not, I can't criticize it with authority point by point, but continually there are these discussions about, well, we can't because it doesn't meet, aren't there logical ways to make exceptions? Aren't there ways to amend mm. processes to get things done? Not at a risk of quality or safety or any of those types of things, but to meet the objective, to make things more efficient and to get processes simplified so that things can get done. Um one thing which which strikes me about this story, and just bear with me for a second, because this might sound like it's a fairly technical um, observation. Do you it's remember? Not like, you. not like me at all. No, uh, it's not like you've known me at work for a few years. Um, do you remember a few years ago when Dara O'Brien moved to ban co-living, and yes. he and he tried to pass a new law to say we're just not allowing any of these anymore? So you know, co-living is the Gina's pulling a face now. She's not sure what that it's, is. It's, um, it's one of those things where you tenements. shared. Um, we have shared common areas, and that you would only actually rent the bedroom. Oh. So basically, you have, you have a bedroom to yourself, but you share the it's like kitchen student, and, and like common halls. Like, like sort of like basically a student, like, student like these things called dormitories that we have a lot of in the United States. Yes. There's hardly any of them. So here. there yes. was a proposal uh, under the previous government, as championed by Owen Murphy, the previous minister for housing, that this would be a housing solution that works for some people because some people aren't all that bothered about having their own kitchen. They just want their own sleeping space, and they'd be perfectly happy to share a kitchen with others. And this was meant meant to be then, therefore, a slightly more affordable way of dealing with some people's housing needs. Dara O'Brien disagreed and tried to pass a law. To to get rid of it. Mm-hmm. But Dara O'Brien admitted when he himself was drafting this law that it was impossible to stop the ones that were already in train even if they hadn't already got planning permission because he said well they've applied for planning permission and the law at the time said these projects were fine and you can't retroactively go back and stop them. I don't know why you would be powerless to stop co-living just because the law has changed in the meantime but yet if a county development plan yeah. changes that you can't go through with a different plan because to build apartments that everyone embraced. needs and it's in, it's in the process because at the day that they applied, these were the rules. Like, so surely you have to assess them based on the rules that applied at the time. Yeah, there's one at the top. They were saying that there's one um, with Gannon, 473 uh, apartments in Belcamp on Dublin 17. They applied in May 2022 and they still haven't had um, an answer. And now it won't matter. It could possibly not matter because of this yeah. legal issue. So they, but they've they done, Gannon to... have done everything right. Mm. That they might have to go back to scratch, which yeah. is just baffling. Um, Gina, what do you make of that interview with Dara O'Brien, the Minister for Housing, uh, the believer who says, I don't see anyone else who would do a better job? Uh, big write-up with you, O'Connell, on page eight of the Sunday Independent. Well, exactly. I mean, look, I, I don't know Mr. Dara O'Brien, and so I'm sure he was offered an opportunity to give a feature, and so I can understand how someone would 
do that for mm. their interview. And then you start to say things that you suddenly, as you see it in print the next day or whenever you gave the interview, now you see it in print this morning, okay. you probably go wake up and go, yeah. oh. So long story short, he didn't, he didn't write the headline. probably not yeah. doing me any big mm. favors in terms of my friends and coalition building no, but, 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 and collaborative but, but, nature of teamwork. So but I guess that the, whether is, he wrote the headline or not. the guru? Yeah. I don't think so. Like whether he wrote the headline or not, like it's certainly his, no, he demeanor, made his, de- his demeanor. Some of his commentary is, is quite... Look, he, my, he made the quotes. Okay. And you need to, like anybody who coaches around communications, you need to stand by your quotes because the reporter can put them together. You don't, if you don't want it, yeah. if you don't want it in print, don't say it. All right. Well, then, from from a communications coach perspective, then, uh, if you know that you are presiding over a real morass where, um, if you'll pardon the back reference, um, housing is not the champagne of departments <laughs> at the moment, uh, and and you're presiding over all of this, and, and you know that you're falling short of your own targets. Do you do, Do you, would your coaching advice be to do a little bit of humility or do you say, no, don't back down, double down? No, I would certainly say that you needed to be not extolling all of the great things that you're doing if the record doesn't show that you're doing great things and you need to be bringing but along things that your you're doing teams. future tense things you're, you're in the in the process of doing. correct you need you need to you can certainly make projections but you should do it in a way that you're going to be able to demonstrate the success on the heels mm-hmm. of this of this mm. this article and certainly if you are trying to build your brand or trying to put yourself as the savior of the housing crisis you better be able to walk the walk the talk after you put this out in print so mm. I guess we'll we'll see what he if if he's the only one that can do and no one else can do a better job then we better see some real results. Yeah. So the the state uh, target last year was for the, the country to build nine thousand publicly owned uh, social housing units. I think the, the final target came in at something like seven thousand three hundred, so it fell short by seventeen percent. Um, the number of state backed affordable homes that were delivered last year fell short by 56%, yeah, uh, fewer than half. Yeah, that's an Yeah, now the, the minister in this piece puts it down slightly to a hangover from, from COVID and then last year because of the difficulty uh, posed by the war in Ukraine, not alone with their supply chain difficulties, but also rampant construction inflation, which has just made it more difficult to build. So he is, in his interview, reflecting those complications that he's not just dismissing them and saying, Everything's great. Uh, you have it there in front of you. Does he mention at any point, you know, the amount of homeless children or, you know, the rising homelessness numbers and like how it actually affects people day to day? I don't see it. No, in me this. either. No. Is that a... Well, there, there is one uh, to, to O'Brien's critics. So it, this isn't a line from, from Dara O'Brien No, himself. this is just from Hugh. To O'Brien's critics, and there are many, there is a level of self-delusion that may well give them genuine cause for concern. They will doubtless point to the litany of missed housing targets, levels of homelessness heading towards 12,000, and a highly dysfunctional rental market that landlords are fleeing in their droves, and mounting fears that the ending of the evictions ban will only make things worse. So it is reflected in the piece, but not, 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 in, not, not in any quotes that come out from him. That, that, that's a fading in your mind? Yeah, I just think, and like I'm no communications expert, clearly, but I just think if it was me and if I was um, the housing minister, I would be very aware that this is a catastrophe, not of Dara O'Brien's making, but it is a catastrophe, a social catastrophe. We admitted that there was an emergency, what, four, five years ago? Mm. Um, And he keeps missing targets. So if I was him, I'd try a bit more humility. And I would at least mention the fact that we have like thousands and thousands and thousands of homeless children who are going to lack developmentally because yeah. of being brought up in hotels and B&Bs and emergency accommodation. What I expect at the time of the next general election is to point a delivery to what we've been able to do in difficult times, that we've reformed the planning system and streamlined delivery too, and I've put confidence back in the sector to deliver it and stabilised the rental market. If that's the, streamlining the planning system, I'd love to see The, the champagne of promises uh, from Dara O'Brien. Uh, Gina London, former CNN correspondent and uh, communications coach, and Aoife Moore, uh, political journalist. Thank you both very much for thank joining you. me in studio. 
On the Record with Gavin Riley. Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC. Great minds think unalike. Different skill sets, diverse opinions, it all adds up to the new equation. On News Talk.